The following program and views expressed are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPTF or Curtis Media Group. Welcome to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Heart Health Radio, Heart Health Radio, oh, 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 hearthealthradio.com, Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action, talk to your doctor. This is Heart Health Radio and the Heart Health Radio Network. I'm Dave Alexander along uh, you know, across the studio is the name Dr. is Weefold, Doctor Franklin. Weefold. In case you forget it, I am not forgetting. The name is you know I let me tell you. Yes, I, I have had a problem with names. Yes, my whole life. Yeah. My mom had the same thing, and it's not a sign of dementia. There is uh, a, a thing with people's brains where they can't remember names. So, for example, I would see a patient. Yes, in the grocery store. Uh huh. And they would go, hi, Dr. Weefald, and I would know everything yes. about them. Yes. In my mind, I could even see what their cardiac cath looks like. I'm not kidding. Sure. I could see and remember what it looked like when I was squirting the dye into the coronary arteries, but I could not remember their name. Yeah. And so it was very embarrassing. And it got to the point where I would finally just admit it. You know, I would say, look... I know everything about you. I can remember all our conversations, but yeah. I have a problem with my brain yeah. in coming up with people's names. And it's interesting because if you forget someone's name or you can't come up with a name, mm-hmm. people assume that you don't keep them as a priority right. in your life. Whereas it's not that, it's just your brain's not working. You know? My pastor has a similar yeah. thing going. Oh, he can calls, you imagine that? All the, oh, yeah. the sheep in his flock. He calls he everybody brother. Brother. Even the <laughs> women. No, no. Well, I mean, in this day no, and age, brother. with you know this this uh, gender, <laughs> no. No. you know, uh, question, you can just call everybody brother. Of course, you know. Like, hey, brother. Why not call everybody sister? It just gives him a second or two to really think about who it is he's, he's that's true you know but then you know what'll happen sometimes too yeah if we don't exchange names about a half an hour later yes the name will just pop into my head yes it's like it was in a maze and going through the maze right. and running around and all of a sudden boom it comes out yeah. now if anybody else listening has the same problem call us up and give us a story about what you it's not that uncommon no and my mom had it and she would even forget our names I'm not kidding. Oh, yes, yes, She would go, Eric, Susan, Franklin, uh, Verna. Yeah. She'd have to like cycle through the names to figure it out. My oldest daughter is named Casey, so it starts with a C, and the second daughter's name is Erin, and for a long time, we would just call her Karen, because we'd start to say Casey and then flip on to Erin. Listen, Statins. Oh, we got two good stories about statins. I'm glad because I I already take it. Yeah. You know, I already take statins. Maybe they're good for me. Um, We're going to talk about the new Omicron variant and Tua Tagalivialoa. It's as best as I can do. Hey, guess what? Guess what? Yes. There's a name for what I have. What is it? Called nominal aphasia. Nominal aphasia? Nominal. Nominal is name. Yeah. Aphasia, and it's a problem 
in name retrieval. It's well documented. So this is very interesting. I'm going to see yeah. whether you remember that next week. Yeah. Whether who, you remember what, the when, name where, for it. Who, what, when, where, how. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Anyway, nominal aphasia. If you have nominal aphasia, give us a call. We'll talk about it. All right. Tua Tagalavalior. I garbaged up his name twice. Yeah. I saw the play. For football, it was a normal play. Yeah. You you take a guy, you put him down to the carpet. Right. But this is this perhaps the second time that he was put down on the yeah. carpet. And he was laying there with his hands in a weird yeah, it, shape. It, it, it what was, is that? It was contracted. So that means something in his brainstem was uh, temporarily or injured during that period of time, which caused the muscles in his arms and his, uh, well, the muscles in your fingers come from your arms. Yeah. And they contracted and in what we call a flexion um, spasm. And that's a really bad sign. Um, when I've seen people uh, herniate, and what that means is if you have a bleed into your brain, um, as the brain swells and mm-hmm. you can't do anything about it, it mm-hmm. compresses the brain stem on the opening of the skull that goes into the, the spine. And as that's being crushed, you have the same uh, contraction flexures. Yeah. And then you go limp. And so something was seriously wrong with his brain during that period of time. And luckily, he recovered pretty quickly. Right. But for me, the question is, what's the long-term damage? And, you know, they're doing MRI scans. Yeah. And I imagine they're going to do a PET scan of his brain. Because when the brain has been injured uh, and it has to use other means of metabolism. So the brain is run on glucose. It's the only organ in our body that is glucose dependent. Okay. That's why when you go off of sugar, like mm-hmm. I did two weeks ago, yeah, I lost eight pounds. Good for and you. And let me tell you though, thought I was gonna die. Really? Oh, my brain was just not working. And right. you talk about nominal aphasia. I don't remember that name. Nominal aphasia. <laughs> it's people's names I can't remember. It's specifically people. Sure. So um, I just felt like there was a cloud inside my brain that was just making it impossible for me to function normally. Yeah. And I tell you, that I just said, forget this. And I went and had a clock bar. You know what a clock bar is? Yes. I love them. And as soon as that sugar hit my system, it went away. All right. But this fella was released from the hospital Yeah. Th- that night. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would have held him over. Well, I, I and again, I'm not, not knowing doctor. all of the... Uh, the circumstances sure. around the medical evaluation. But what I did hear is that his MRI was completely normal. Right. So there was no uh, uh, injury enough to lead to destruction of tissue. Um, you can see uh, a stroke very quickly on an MRI. Right. Not on a CT. Right. But very quickly on an MRI. So there wasn't like uh, lack of blood flow damage to part of his brain. Right. But the question becomes over the next week or so, what's his functional capacity? And there is something called the um, uh, um, 
concussion protocol, right? which I know from being still in touch with my friends at Notre Dame football, uh, they've had several uh, um, people on the team who've gone through the concussion protocol. And it's very specific. Uh, it involves cognitive response, right. not just how many fingers do I have up. It, it's movement, tracking, it's um, uh, you know saying words in a mm-hmm. certain pattern, mm-hmm. but it's also balance. Okay, so they get on a treadmill and they have to go certain speeds and stop and yeah. not fall over. Yeah. They have to be able to stand on one foot and then they even vibrated a little bit to see how your body responds to those changes. And there are certain numerical uh, achievements mm-hmm. in terms of scoring on these tests that you have to get in order to be cleared. Now, I didn't know this. You told me this this, this now, that apparently in the game before, right. he went down. And it was a short week. Yeah. For him, because a Thursday night right. game following a Sunday, and they put him back in the game. Yes, they did. And um, who knows what they did to determine how good he was in terms of brain function and sure. possible brain damage. But um, if he has some permanent stuff going on, can you imagine the fallout that is going to happen? But no. you know, here's another thing that I don't understand. What's that? Why there aren't better helmets? I mean, think about the technology mm-hmm. that we have. I saw uh, an engineer from MIT mm-hmm. who was a materials man, and he designed a box. And the box wasn't very big. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably wasn't. Smaller than a bread box, how's that sound? Sure. And they put an egg in it because he wanted to demonstrate mm. what you could do with materials to mitigate um, uh, damage to anything uh, on impact. And mm-hmm. he went to the top of this tower at MIT. Yeah. And he dropped the thing. Yeah. And so terminal velocity for that was 110 miles an hour. So it hit the ground at 110 miles per hour, mm-hmm. this this box. And he opens it up and there's nothing wrong with the egg. Mm-hmm. Okay. He fried it and ate it and he proved it was okay. No, I'm kidding. Right. But the point I'm trying to make yeah. is where are these engineers working on football helmets? They and, claim to be. Yeah. They claim to have a lot of research going on. Yeah, but it's, it, you know, it, what is the problem? It's deceleration. So it may just be that no matter what you do to cushion it, the brain has to decelerate within the skull, mm-hmm. and then it bounces back to the other. You know, do you know, have you, ever, have you ever seen a brain? No. So I've been to autopsies. When I was at Johns Hopkins, oh autopsies were really big. Yes. The brain is like literally like Jello, okay. Uh. It is a a substance that you know you can put your finger into if you want to. Now I never did that. Good for you. But so I, I, maybe there is a limitation of brain protection, right? Because it's going to fly against the side of the skull that hits, and then rebound back. Yes. So there is something called a contra coup injury. So if you get hit in the front of your skull, right? the major damage is to the back. Mm-hmm. And you can also, however, damage the front as it reverberates back. So, you know, these one-punch killings? Sure. They they fracture the brain. Yeah. And that's because of the way the brain uh, vibrates and, and moves around inside the skull. So maybe that's why. Right. Maybe they have developed the helmets 
that are of utmost uh, protection. Sure. And it's just a matter of the way the brain is structured. They can't do anything about it. But I tell you, it's a scary thing. And it is. Would you let your kid play football? No, not a, not for I ten minutes. I, I would. I you know it's it's funny because I think it's adorable when the six year old and seven year olds are running out there with the big you know, helmet with the big and, helmet the oversight. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't want my kid to do it Absolutely or my grandkid to do it. I mean, right. I, I don't don't want to do it. I th- I thought about playing flag football in a in an adult league. Yeah, I might do that because there isn't contact. Right. You know? And then how about the rugby players? Have you ever seen them? Sure, they're tough. But you know, the question becomes then, how much protection is contributing right. to the injuries? You're because right. Because they think they're invulnerable because they've got this you know, mylar plastic carbon fiber cushion thing on their head. Now, thank right. God they've gotten rid of targeting. Right. But they're still doing it. Targeting right. is when you use your head yep. as a battering ram in football. Right. But the first time... I was on the sidelines at Notre Dame. So mm-hmm. I was one of the team physicians, and the first time I got to be on the sideline, I was right at the line of scrimmage. You know, they line up pretty darn close. Yeah. And when that went off, yes. and the noise of these folks hitting each other, yeah. the halfback came around and just got clobbered. I mm. mean, it sounded like a, a baseball bat smashing a watermelon. Terrible. And I said, he's dead. I was going to prepare to go out on the field. Right. He gets up and trots on back. I, I just I can't imagine the violence. You just can't imagine the violence that is endemic to that sport. But, right. hey, everybody loves it. Right. You know? Okay, so statins are going to be used for a couple of different purposes. Uh, we're going to talk about the new Omicron variant, not in the U.S. yet. At least it's not big Singapore. in the U.S. It's, it's in, in Singapore. 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 Uh, insulin is type 2 diabetes. And guess what? If we have a little, we need to get a, an actual physical manifestation of this, an arrow that points between coffee good or coffee bad. I think the arrow has gone the other way. Now. Arrow is now on coffee good. That's a yeah. good thing. That's coming up on Heart Health Radio. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions, so they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. <laughs> we got a lot of coffee in our studio some days. Well, I had a cup today. I, I, I'm just amazed. Um, I usually don't drink coffee anymore. Yeah. And I was walking to my apartment building, and there was a lady there making a free cup of coffee in the in the um, uh, lobby. Yeah. So I started chatting with her, and sure enough, it was really good. And it's free. At If you live at Park and Market in North Hill, you have free coffee every day. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's good coffee. Well, too. listen, coffee is now good for you. Who says this? Well, it's interesting because there's always talk about you know, coffee causing diabetes is going to kill you. Yeah. Then there's talk about coffee making you better. Well, they finally did the study. It was 12 years of a prospective study, those who drank coffee. And they split it up into regular coffee and into decaffeinated coffee. Yeah. And it turns out, and oh, they selected these people so they didn't have AFib. They didn't have something in their heart that would be excited yes. by the caffeine. Yes. And if you drank three cups of decaffeinated coffee mm-hmm. or five cups 
of regular coffee. Now, that mm. doesn't make much mm. sense, but mm. caffeine apparently dilates your arteries. Did you know that? No. One of the treatments for asthma before they came up with these drugs mm-hmm. was coffee because it relaxes the, bron- the bronchial tubes and the artery. Yeah. And there was a significant reduction in cardiovascular uh, events, death, and stroke mm-hmm. if you drank coffee. So don't just go out and start guzzling. It's like no. anything yeah. else in moderation. Uh, I, the reason why I don't drink coffee now is I have a five-hour energy at 8 o'clock in the morning uh-huh. when I, or 7 o'clock when I get up. That's 120 milligrams of caffeine. The small cups of coffee are 80 milligrams yeah. of caffeine. The huge, you know, lentes or whatever they're called mm. at Starbucks are about 200. Okay. So if you drink one of those big things, yeah. you're getting a ton of caffeine. So anything in moderation. And I, I don't think um, we can definitely say that if you drink coffee, you're going to have reduced risk. But it appears that in this study, it showed that coffee drinkers versus non-coffee drinkers had yes. a lower risk. And it wasn't as though it was biased in that they looked at just backwards looking and seeing who drank coffee and who didn't. Right. They assigned people. This was a no real coffee, coffee. experiment. Yeah, it was a they, real experiment. They, they gave it to them. And then, yeah. I don't know what the effect would be if I fell into the decaf group. Yeah. I would be miserable. Well, and, you know, the thing about caffeine yeah. is that it's actually, in low doses, very good for increasing your energy levels mm-hmm. and making your mind sharper. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I, I, the only I, downside of caffeine for some people is that it, if they have a genetic predisposition to have an excitable electrical component of their heart, it can make it worse. Okay. So the uh, attempt is now being made to get people who have type 2 diabetes completely off insulin. Well, you've heard I've been talking about this, and, and the reason is type 1 diabetes, you have no insulin production. Right. Or Right. You know, extremely small. It, it's an autoimmune disease. They think it might be initiated by a virus. Mm-hmm. And your own body attacks what's called the insulin-producing cells in your pancreas. Yeah. And they no longer produce insulin. And so your body completely lacks it. Before the discovery of insulin in the 20s and 30s, um, the treatment was starvation because mm. you didn't want any uh, carbohydrates at all. The way insulin functions is it, it allows your body cells to incorporate um, carbohydrates into the cells for energy production and everything else. Yeah. So if you have no insulin, it can't happen. Now, type 2 diabetes is is when you have plenty of insulin. Mm-hmm. And either your islet cells, which are the cells that produce insulin, don't quickly respond because of a genetic problem then your sugar levels rise. They don't quick, the islet cells don't quickly respond and produce enough insulin to bring them down. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happens is you have resistance to insulin. So the insulin is there. Uh, it's not pounding the sugar back into your cells. And so your sugar levels in your bloodstream rise. All the medicines that we have now are directed toward improving the islet cell sensitivity to produce insulin, your own insulin faster. Yeah. Or now to 
um, make the insulin work better at its target of the cell. Right. But also now two other mechanisms. And if you look at the way um, one of the best medicines we have is they're called SGLT2 inhibitors. And what is that? It means it affects the kidney so that the kidney doesn't retrieve the sugar from your urine. It lets it pass right through. Right. So those are called glucose transport inhibitors. And you give them, and the names are Jardians and, and others. Right. You give them and you pee out sugar so the sugar levels fall in your bloodstream. The other ones that we use also involve the gut. Now, believe it or not, there are things called incretins, and they work with your insulin, and they move the food through the gut quicker. And so these are like Trulicity, and the new one is Monjaro. They also have a metabolic effect, though. They have an effect on the insulin working more efficiently. So what we're trying to say, and what I've been saying on the show for three, four years now, is that if you have type 2 diabetes, you want to be on as little insulin as possible because you already have your own insulin. And what does insulin do when you add it? Yeah. It makes you gain weight. Oh, because yeah. Because it takes the sugar, excess sugar, and just store it away. And when it's stored away, it can be turned into fat. Mm-hmm. The other medicines that I'm talking about, especially the GLP-1 inhibitors, the ones that are working on the incretins that are making your insulin more efficient, they are remarkable weight loss drugs. Right. So if you look at Monjero, which just came out, it's a new incretin-based GLP-1. It not only makes your insulin work more efficiently, it makes your gut move the food through quicker so it's not as absorbed. Right. And people are losing, I don't know, 20% of their weight over six months of yeah. therapy. Yeah. And these medicines also, interestingly... If you don't have diabetes, it won't lower your sugar. It'll just make you lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a fantastic thing coming up. And if you're a type 2 diabetic, please don't stop your insulin. Talk with your doctor. Maybe you're a candidate for these other medications that can help you reduce the amount of insulin you're taking now. And you're listening to Heart Health Radio. Now back to Heart Health. Have a question for Dr. Weefald? Call 919-860-9783. This is Heart Health Radio, the Heart Health Radio Network, and we turn to Rose Hoban of North Carolina Health News for our policy information. How you doing, Rose? Good. How are you? Good. There's a, a big story about child welfare and and young people, especially with emotional and behavioral health needs. Um, somebody has predicted that the state is going to get sued pretty quickly. Yeah, well, I mean, when they get sued, it's usually like by the Department of Justice, yeah. the U.S. Department of Justice, and then they, they, you know, make the state do things like sign on to a plan to, you know, spend X amount of money to, you know, to uh, to uh, fix the problem, right? But, there, um, there is an estimate about 50 children are sitting in emergency rooms on any given day waiting to be what treated for emotional and behavioral issues well it's not just emergency rooms they might be sitting in a local county department of social services office like looking to find a placement oh so my here's God. the thing it's like it's 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 a mess we've been documenting this for a long time and uh 
this story from Carolina Public Press, they've also been on this story for a long time, too. Mm-hmm. You know, we have not invested as a state in children's mental health, um, primarily in things like crisis services for kids, right? And, and, and I always tell people, like, when, I, when I, my writers are writing, I'm always like, describe what a crisis is, right? Yeah. So a crisis might be a kid who is cutting on themselves and threatening to harm themselves, mm-hmm. or a kid who maybe has an early manifestation of like an adult psychiatric problem, um, you know, like early schizophrenia, or kids with like autism or other mm-hmm. developmental disabilities who have very little capability of sort of modulating their emotions, right? right? And so they're kind of out of control. And we really have not, as a state, invested in having resources for those kids. We, we, on a per-child basis, we rank last amongst other states in the Southeast mm. in per-child investment. Wow. And, you know, we need things like a crisis bed, like, you know, like a, a facility like that could take like 16 kids because that's sort of a federal limit. There's all these arcane rules. And um, for you to, for your crisis facility, for your psychiatric facility to get federal reimbursement, right. the facility has to be less than 16 beds. Yeah. So, you know, theoretically, you could put all of these small little places around the state yeah. that, could, that could manage these. There's also a need for uh, EPSDT, which are like, longer term facilities for like when a kid needs an out of home placement for a couple months or like a half a year. Um, we have a place here in the triangle up in, um, Durham, it's called the Wright school Mm -hmm. and it's a great facility. It, it, it has like 40 kids. It's a school. They live there during the week and then they go home in the weekends. And those kids get intensive behavioral services in addition to keeping their education going. Right. Right. And like for, for years, every year back in the early teens, I would write a story that the, that the legislature has zeroed out their funding. Right. Right. right? I've heard and of then this. It would be this big fight. And um, there was one lawmaker uh, who's a, a, a Wake County guy, Nelson Dollar, Apparently, his neighbor's kid had been to the right school and had been really helped by it. Yeah. So he kept going to the he kept going to the mat for the right school every year. Every year they would zero it out, and every year he would fight to keep the funding. Eventually, I think he convinced people. And so, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think we're we're developing a similar school in the western part of the state. Right. But still, that's 80 beds for a state of you know, it's growing quickly. So we really, uh, it's, and you know, one of the problems in North Carolina mm. is I, I sent Rose, I sense your, your soapbox has just been pulled out. Oh, uh, this, but this, but it's not just me. Every, <laughs> no, Rose, every Rose, get on the soapbox. Get on the fire, soapbox. Fire, shout every, out. Go ahead. Every state secretary has had the same thing, which is that we have, we have these county-administered systems, mm-hmm. 
And so the quality of the county-administered system, Mm -hmm. there's 100 counties. Some of them are good. Some of them are lousy. Yeah. Some of them are really, really poor. There's no place where the buck stops. Yeah. Right? And uh, uh, Secretary Vosh, who served under uh, Governor McCrory, said this, complained about it. (laughs) Uh, Mandy Cohen complained about it. The uh, uh, Senator, now uh, State Supreme Court Justice Tamara Barringer, when she was at the legislature, she worked extensively on uh, reforming the state's child welfare system. But, you know, it's like, it's like turning a, uh, uh, an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. You know, these things change really slowly. Um, and, when, and when Senator Barringer got uh, uh, lost for election in Wake County but, and then was elected to the state Supreme Court, that because she was no longer at the legislature, it kind of lost momentum. Right. Right. She was such a champion. She had been a foster mom for 10 years. So she understood the child welfare system. So, you know, this has been this long standing problem for folks of us who are at the legislature. And I talk to people about this. People bend my ear about this all the time. It really is a train wreck in slow motion. Mm. All right. It, it's NorthCarolinaHealthNews.org. Thank hey, you, can Rose. I, can I give you guys a, a quick heads up on something you sure can. about to do? Absolutely. We're about to, you're getting that you're the first place. I'm announcing it. Yeah. We're going to announce tomorrow, uh, Monday morning that we have partnered with a publication called the Charlotte Ledger, which yeah. covers business in the Charlotte area. Yeah. And we are... Together, we're paying for a reporter who will be focused on sort of business of healthcare issues. Wow. So watch for that. We're going to have our first story on Monday morning. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Congratulations. It's really exciting. All right. Thank Terrific, you. Rose. Thank you. NorthCarolinaHealthNews.org. Rose Holman. Um, so we're going to talk about statins being used to fight prostate cancer. Yeah. And... Also, fatty liver and statins. And I'm excited about both of these situations. And in fact, if you look at across the board, Mm -hmm. I don't know of a single disease process that has has been looked at Mm -hmm. that does not show some beneficial effect uh, in terms of treating the disease and and making um, the symptoms and the progression lower. Uh, when the patient is also taking a statin. Statins are miracle drugs in my mind. Right. Uh, and I've, I've been using them since the first one came out. Mm-hmm. Pravastatin. Uh, well, actually, Mevacor or, um, came out earlier, but it wasn't um, widely used. And when you think about the effects, it's not just the way it works on cholesterol production. Statins are an inhibitor of the way cholesterol is produced. And if people don't realize this, your liver produces 99% of the cholesterol in your body. Yeah, The rest is absorbed, but it's, it's produced in the liver. So the way a statin works is it reduces the amount of cholesterol that your liver produces. And it's a miracle drug, not only because of the cholesterol effect, 
Yeah. But I think in many of these disease processes, mainly because it's an anti-inflammatory medication, and inflammation has always been uh, a big part of what we've talked about on the show. And when you reduce inflammation, you're bound to reduce uh, a lot of the effects of different disease processes. Now, they don't know this for sure, but those people on statins had a lower risk of progression of prostate cancer. That was absolutely clear. Yeah. But what's exciting to me also is that using aggressive lipid-lowering agents, including um, a statin, a torvastatin, but also a zetamibi. And it's interesting. I just talked about how you know, the cholesterol production in the liver is the main thing, is mm-hmm. that amoebae works by preventing your gut from absorbing uh, dietary cholesterol. When you use the two together, yeah. is that amoebae and atorvastatin, there's this tremendously extra reduction that you can't attribute to one or the other by itself. So if you give is that amoebae, you're going to lose 5% of your cholesterol level. Right. If you use atorvastatin, you're going to lose 10 to 20. If you use both together... Instead of 25% mm-hmm. reduction, it's 60. There's a, what we call a synergistic effect. So fatty liver is a real problem in this country because of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Yeah. And we've never really had a treatment for it. So some people thought metformin might work. But really right now, the only treatment we have is diet. Losing a tremendous amount of weight right. can reduce the amount of fat in your liver. Now, why is fatty liver important? Because it can turn into cirrhosis. And what is cirrhosis? It's when your liver gets scarred and it no longer works. And then you wind up going into liver failure and possibly needing a liver transplant, etc. Well, they looked at a study where they used atorvastatin in combination with azetamibi. And in those people who took it versus the placebo, mm-hmm. they had a marked reduction in their fat in their liver. So it's very exciting news. Um, it, and I am hopeful that they can come up with a definitive treatment for fatty liver, perhaps based on these two agents, or even a newly designed agent that does the same thing, perhaps even better. So I'm excited. Now, the liver is about the only part of my body that I have not been diagnosed as is is fatty. Uh, I don't know. Have you had the study? No, I've never had a study. So how do you discover it? Um, Ultrasonography. Okay. So um, quite frequently when I pick it up in my patients, because I think they might have a gallbladder problem. Yeah. So they get an ultrasound of their right upper quadrant where the gallbladder is, and then it comes back, gallbladder's fine, but she got fatty liver. One more thing Or when you get a CT scan, and you can see these definitive patterns of the way the fat is through the liver. It's like it's marbled. You know? Yes. Um, it looks like a marbled steak. Yeah. And when you do that, um, the liver turns out to have a distinct pattern of fat throughout the liver, and that can be a very bad thing. Now, if you have fatty liver yeah. and it's early, don't panic. But the most uh, effective thing you can do if you have fatty liver is not cut out fat in your diet. Yeah. Sugar, white flour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other thing is exercise. And those two things get your body mass index down to 25 or low. And that's been shown as an effective treatment for fatty liver. Can I now ask for statins plus Zetamibi? It's not approved. Not approved. It, and it's not going to be approved until they have more data. Okay. Now, what does approved mean? Um, approved means that the FDA has said this is a definitive treatment. Right. However, 
your physician, if he or she wants to, sure. can prescribe it off-label. Now, here's the interesting thing. Most people with fatty liver have high cholesterol. So if your physician decides to prescribe, oh, yeah. it has an extra added benefit of probably, and notice I say probably because yeah. the studies are not 100% convincing right now. I would say 95% convincing. It'll probably help reduce the amount of fat in your liver as well. Now, I use a lot of that combination of a Zetamibi, which was brand name Zetia, yeah. um, to, uh, and a Torvastatin together, and it works very, very well. So ask your physician. And remember, the targets of LDL now are much lower than they used to be. Right. Instead of 100, it became 70, and that's 50. Right. 50. That's the LDL. So the combination, triglycerides and LDL, get them down. That's it. You, it drives you crazy when I tell you this, what? I still don't know what my number is. You better know. You better know two no numbers, three numbers. Earthly idea. What? Your blood pressure number. Yeah. Your hemoglobin A1C yeah. number and yeah. your LDL number and possibly your triglyceride. All right. Um, but it's important to know. All right. We've we've got Herb on the line. We're going to pick up with Herb. Is it Herb and, or Herb? No, it's Herb. It's Herb. Okay. Uh, and we're also going to talk about Alzheimer's drugs. And a lot more on this program. By the way, we're only till 1230 today because of football. So if you want to be on the show, better call up. 919-860-9783, Heart Health Radio. Well, you know you make me want to kick my heels up. You're listening to Heart Health Radio. Uh, I just said that we would only be on until 1230. Since it's already past twelve thirty, that's not really true. Oh, it was one thirty. One thirty, yeah, one thirty. One thirty. I, I, I get things confused. Herb is on the line. He's in Raleigh. How you doing, Herb? Good morning to you all. Y'all are such a joy to hear on Saturday. Thank you, thank you. What's up? Saturday afternoon. I've got a friend. It's a lady who's in her probably early to mid sixties. Yes. She's not on, not qualified for Medicare or anything like that. Right. She she does has a part time job doesn't make a whole lot. Yes. She's been diagnosed with a a rare type of uh, disease where in, it's hard to explain. I knew I'd have trouble explaining. It's okay. Of some kind of a bone in around her inner ear, either is deformed or just never formed at all. Yeah. Never. You know. So the problem is she's losing more and more of her hearing. Right. And said that she's got to have a certain kind of uh, operation that to fix that, but the surgery is over $50,000. Lord have mercy. Wow. I remember, Dr. Weefall, you had mentioned that Weight Med is one of the better uh, charity care hospitals around, and I heard that the other week when you all were on, and I said I wanted to call and just ask for her. Is there someone she can contact? I mean, there, she's, I can tell she's going yeah. down. She works a part-time job at a Bojangles. Well, well, all right. And, well, Herb, he's looking for resources. Yeah, so there's Wake a Med. couple. Um, there's something called emergency Medicaid, and it is in, it is something where they grant Medicaid on an urgent basis for somebody who had a life-threatening illness. I, I had I got emergency Medicaid on several occasions, um, but I had, you have to go through a social worker. Um, and this was at Wait Med. 
and it allowed the patients to get their surgery. One was a bypass, and one was actually a heart transplant. Um, the other thing you can do is every single nonprofit hospital has a um, application for charity care. Um, the one that is in uh, UNC is a fantastic one. I've gotten several patients charity care through UNC. Yes. Now, some hospitals have a charity care system that is unique to the hospital system. I know Johnston Medical Center of UNC has one. Uh, and the uh, it's called Project Access. The name was almost going to avoid me, but it came up. So, for example, I have patients who apply to Johnston Medical Center um, specifically for Project Access. I think the best uh, hope you have um, would be UNC. And what happens is they have resident clinics, mm-hmm. okay? And so, for example, I had a guy with a bone tumor. Uh, I got him into the orthopedic clinic at UNC. It turned out to be benign, yeah. but at least we were able to find out, and his care was free. Now, if you are listening from you know, one of the hospital systems, yeah. I am not saying that if you call Weight Med, for example, if you call UNC, that's a guarantee of free care. No. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm not speaking for them, okay? Uh, don't call up and say, well, Dr. Weefeld said you do this for free. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it is, there are plenty of applications and resources available at the hospital. So the best thing to do would be to call um, these hospitals and find out how one applies to see if the surgery is uh, doable. Now, the nice thing about these hospital systems is that their physicians are part of them. So, for example, Weight Med has Weight Med physician practices. Yeah. And they would be able to find you a surgeon who would work with the hospital system and hopefully get some charity care. Now, just remember that what we're seeing now is some hospitals are supposed to give a certain amount of charity care and they're not. So, uh, hopefully, with this recent publicity about how the hospital systems are not providing enough charity care, that your uh, acquaintance or your friend will be able to obtain it. Not a guarantee, but the best source is to go straight to the hospital and call them up and say, I'd like to speak to somebody who um, is in charge of the charity care services. Herb, I've got a telephone number for Wake Med if you're ready to take it down. Yes, sir. 919-340-7808. And their website's got a uh, you know a whole thing about financial assistance, yeah, and and the the income thresholds and what kind of a right. discount they can offer. Yeah, and the other yeah. thing to remember also is that even if you get a discount only, uh, yeah. that can be negotiated in terms of monthly payments, right, and things that make it so it's affordable now. You know, anything is not affordable. Now, I'm going to say something that I'm not going to recommend, yeah. but I'm just going to tell you what I've seen and is when uh, people get on a uh, charity-based uh, website. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, it can help. Um, you can get people to donate. And uh, I'm blanking on the name of it right now. Um Fund me, GoFundMe. GoFundMe, sure. Yeah, so you'd open up a GoFundMe page. Yeah. And you say, look, I've got this problem. I'm going to lose my hearing. And will you donate? 
And uh, it quite frequently happens that people uh, open their hearts and their wallets for you. Yeah. Yes, sir. Herb, well, good thank luck. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you all so much. All right. God bless. bless I'm going to pray for the, the person. Right. Take care. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jeff in Apex. Thank you for holding. How you doing, Jeff? Hey, guys. I'm doing good today. Good. Uh, what's up? How are you folks this afternoon? We're all right. We're all right. I have a question. I, uh, I'm a retired fireman, and I decided I'm 60 years old, and I decided uh, my wife and I to go to craft body scan for a heart and lung scan. And Great. Yes. Actually, glad I, I'm glad I did. Uh, I have a question in regard to uh, the calcium score. Um, yeah. Mine, I'm, I'm 60 years old, and uh, my calcium score in – I had it done uh, in 2003. It was it came to 13.69, which which was uh, that was that that was great. So uh, this time it came back at 730. Ooh. And uh, so 90%. Uh, I'm in the 90 percentile for my age. Right. And so 137 of that number was in my LAT. Right. And my right coronary was 593. Uh, I am presently on Robostatin and Lisinopril. Uh, and I am under the care of a cardiologist just for those two items. Um, so with this information, I did go back and hand-delivered this report. And they... Uh, uh, got back to me, and uh, the one of the things was suggested that uh, make sure I uh, get my uh, uh, a lipid panel done uh, soon, right. um, as in next week. And also, uh, he did say that um, with with a patient not having any any symptoms at all, so I guess. I think he used the word asymptomatic. Right. Um, that there's uh, really nothing at this point that he would do unless the LDLs came back significantly high. We got about a minute. Um, so I just wanted to kind of throw that by you because sure. this is uh, something I hear. You, I hear the craft bodies again all the time on this uh, yeah. station, and this will be just. No, it's a, it's a great it's thing that you got this. Yeah, you're, so you're at high risk, and what does this mean? It means you need to get your cholesterol level down as low as possible. And um, even if you're asymptomatic, what the risk means is that in the future, you could have a clot form on a plaque, even if the plaque is not uh, enough to limit blood flow when you exercise. So, for example, a 35-year-old man can have a heart attack, even with a very low calcium score, um, because of inflammation of the plaque and clotting. And you can too. Uh, let me give you an example. My calcium score in my LED was 400, and I got my LDL down to 11, and now it's about 40. So you can regress the plaque. You can make the calcium go away and the cholesterol go away. Work with your doctor. Get that LDL down low. Exercise. Eat right. Avoid sugar and white flour, and you'll be able to lower your risk. Whether you should take aspirin, Talk to your doctor about that. All right. We're another half hour coming up on Heart Health Radio.
Welcome to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Heart Health Radio, Heart Health Radio, oh, 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 hearthealthradio.com, Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action, talk to your doctor. This is Heart Health Radio and the Heart Health Radio Network. Dr. Franklin Weefald here. We're going to talk about Alzheimer's drugs. Also, shout out a doctor who refused to give up on somebody. Well, and you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because he not only refused to give up on somebody, he took research that he was doing that people sort of just, you know, thought, why are you doing this? What are you, what are you researching this little obscure thing for? And yeah. he, he got somebody uh, to the point where they could function with a disease that was terminal here for is night for everyone. And here is Bill in Raleigh. Bill, thank you very much for calling up. How you doing? Oh, we're getting along well. Yeah. hope you are. Good. Good. What's uh, going on? Dr. Dr. Weefall, yes. I wanted to ask you to uh, address an issue of mine, and that is um, they have lowered my uh, MGs, milligrams, in, in my statin from 40 to 20. How do you feel about that? And what what do you think is the threshold of the effectiveness of atorvastatin? You've got they've lowered your atorvastatin, and do you know why, Bill? They've lowered it. Well, I went in for a checkup, and um, they said that you know uh, the PA said it was okay to lower. It. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is controversial, um, and again. I do not know what your levels were, and uh, what's your background in terms of uh, heart disease? I mean, have you had a stent? Have you had bypass no, surgery? Had, Is it just I've you had, have a high cholesterol? No, uh, six years ago I had a valve, a uh, atrial valve, uh, a valve, but mitral valve replaced. Okay, and uh, then in last October I had a stroke. And, okay, um, so you've got a reason to have a very low LDL. Mm-hmm. Um, let me tell you what the thinking was before and what the thinking is now. Um, before, people thought you could have a cholesterol that was too low. Um, so a lot of family physicians and, and general practitioners, for example, would see my patients and I have them on 80 milligrams of atorvastatin plus 10 milligrams of Zetia, and sometimes 40 and 10. Uh, and they'd say, oh my gosh, your LDL is 11, it's 12, we've got to cut back on your medicines. Now we know that that's not true. Um, there, there are, as a family, uh, running around with an LDL of 2, and they have a mutation. It's called the lack of a protein called PCSK9. To make a long story short, having no PCSK9 lowering lowers your LDL and actually reduces the amount of cholesterol in your body and in your plaques. Now, these people with LDLs of four have no health problems. I mean, they have the usual things that people mm-hmm. can get, but they don't have nobody in the family has ever had a heart attack or a cholesterol buildup in their arteries. So if you've had a stroke, it depends on what kind, obviously, but if you've had the usual stroke from cholesterol buildup 
in the arteries to the brain, then you need the lowest LDL possible. Now, maybe did you have liver problems? Did you have muscle problems? Is that the reason why they lowered it? No, sir. Um, after the stroke, you know, um, prior to the stroke, all of my vital, the things that you look at, doctors yeah. look at, were, were within the boundaries. Yeah. Although I had I had the thrombosis right. uh, behind behind the heart because they did a TEE. They they, right. they they did find it and they put me on warfarin, but um, everything has gone even lower. Um, uh, and and I was I'm anxious to try to get off as much um, prescriptions as possible. Oh, I don't blame you. I, I you know I complimented you on Dr. Uh, Ornish's book. Yeah. Um, 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 you know, but uh, since I went down to 20, I'm sleeping much better. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you I, did have a potential side effect from it. Um, uh, let, let me just say, if, if you were, if I have a patient like you yeah, and wants to get off the statin, I have no problem with that because my philosophy as a physician is not to tell the patient what to do or make the patient do something. I am sort of your Boy Scout guide. Um, I educate you. Mm. I get you your merit badges when, when you achieve health things. Mm-hmm. But are there people who don't take statins who do very well? Of course there are. Um, I have a patient who's 96, and he had uh, a blockage in the main artery uh, a pretty significant left main blockage, which is associated with a high risk of death. That was 22 years ago. And I urged the patient to go on a statin, and he said, I don't believe in them. Uh, I think they're harmful. I've listened to the people's uh, pharmacy, and I believe those people. And you know what? I said, okay. And we worked on him through exercise. Uh, I talked to him about Dean Ornish's diet, and he didn't like seaweed. Yeah. So, um, he, well, well he, based, based on your, your recommendations, I, I like to listen to you and I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I appreciate your, uh, advice. Um, and so I just don't, I, I'm not, I'm willing to stay on statin. Yeah. You want a lowest dose possible. Yeah. 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 And, and that's um, fine too. And, but I don't, I don't want to be uh, taking the statin just thinking that, uh, you know, I want it to be worthwhile to be sure. taking the statin. So okay. if, if 20 is insignificant and No, and 20 is a good dose. I mean, 20 is a very good dose. In okay. fact, I've got some people on five, okay? Oh. And oh, because okay. it works for them. Um, they're the on five milligrams to, and they're tolerating it. The and, other thing I wanted to ask, yeah. ask you about was, um, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm-hmm. I, I read it on the internet. I read an article about uh, motor neuron disease and it's out of Sheffield, England. And they're saying uh, that if you exercise more than 15 to 30 minutes, uh, three times a week, you're overdoing it. And they they have found a correlation between people that exercise excessively and the possibilities of the, the, uh, I don't want to say gene, but the characteristics that are in a person's makeup, that are causing um, dementia. Sure. Um, what do you? How do you feel about that? I feel you that know, I, I agree with you. A moderate amount of exercise has definitely 
been shown to be beneficial. Um, but, you know, marathon runners, on average, live five years less than people who don't run marathons. Uh-huh. Um, the constant punishment to your body uh, can raise the level of inflammation. In fact, it does in many, many of the people who exercise excessively. And it can lead to uh, many of the inflammatory mediated diseases. Alzheimer's is one of them. Yeah. The higher the level of inflammation in your body over time, the greater the risk you have of developing Alzheimer's. And it's the same yeah. with heart attacks. Um, yeah, the greater I, your amount of inflammation, the greater the chance of heart attack. We talked about coronary calcium. Yeah. Interestingly, marathon runners uh, who have coronary calcium, if they continue to run marathons, they have more coronary calcium over time. Yeah. And that is because calcium is laid down as a result of inflammation. You inflame well, your arteries and they calcify. As a team physician for Notre Dame, you're you're aware of the uh, the punishment that athletes and former athletes right. go yeah. through in order to excel. Right. So um, this is just one additional fact that yeah. people need to be aware of as far as like Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, chronic uh, the, the 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 chronic uh, uh, encephalitis, the traumatic encephalitis and those sorts of things. Is that sure. right? I think so. I think that you're on the right track. I mean, I don't, I don't have access and knowledge of uh, what the associations of over-exercise are with some of these neurologic diseases you mentioned. But yes. I think in general, I can say exercise is wonderful. Um, but when you exercise to the point of injuring your body, and yeah. I've seen so many marathon runners brag about their injuries, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, man, I tore up my knee uh, about six years ago, but yeah. I still ran a marathon. Yeah. And I said, well, what did you do with the pain? Oh, I blocked the pain out, you know. And I think this it's just ridiculous to destroy your body because you think running a marathon will make you live forever, and it's exactly the opposite. Right. Yeah. Uh, the guy who ran the first marathon, you know what happened to him? Marathon was a city in sure. Greece yeah. that had de- defeated, uh, I think it was the Persians. And so he wanted to let Athens know that they had won. Right. So he ran 26.4 miles yeah. from a marathon to Athens, said, we won the war. And then? Dropped dead. <laughs> and so the point I'm trying to make <laughs> Is that please exercise, but please don't exercise to the point where you are damaging your body because it is completely counterproductive. Might have been might have been better if he had carried a note. No, just get a pigeon, get a pigeon, and fly the pigeon. You know what if he had gotten there and then said, "Ah, yeah," and that would have been it. Yeah, or he said he said the war and then splat, and they might have thought that they lost. Okay, you know you're talking about inflammation. Yeah. And while you're talking about inflammation, I'm looking through what they call my chart. All of my results of all of my tests, I found my CRP score. And what was it? I don't even want to tell you. Tell me. 20. Yeah. So you know what mine is? It's two. Less than one. I mean, you can't measure mine. One one is supposed to be. Yeah, mine is less than one. The normal range. Uh, no, you go up to about five or six. And five okay. or six is okay. Yeah, and the reason why you're 20 is because of your um, disease processes, your diabetes, yeah, your high blood pressure, um, your coronary disease, yeah. and I think more than likely, yeah, 90% of it is what's going on in your foot. 
Yeah, okay? yeah. So when you have an infection, yep. um, the inflammatory response is normal. Okay. And so your CRP is high from that. Right. I'll bet you when they cure your foot, it yeah. goes way down. But right. what, can you do something to lower it? Yeah, you can. Tumor it. Ginger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Milk thistle. Okay. Keep your cholesterol level low. Keep your, uh, say on your statin, um, keep your, your A1C at six if you can, seven. Yeah. And I know you can't exercise now with your foot, yeah. but you can do some things with your arms. Get an arm bicycle. You heard of that? I'm I'm in a wheelchair right now. No, an arm bicycle. No, feet. no, no. That's it sits arm. on the table. Yes, I know that. And then you move your arms like you're cycling yeah, with your yeah. arms. Get one of those. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm going to pick up with Jessica in just a moment, and I'll tell you something about my foot if we've got time. Yeah. Coming up on Heart Health Radio. You're listening to Heart Health Radio on the Heart Health Radio Network. Jessica in Raleigh, thank you for squeezing in your, your phone call here uh, at the end of the show. How you doing, Jessica? I'm doing great, thank you. Good, what's up? You guys talking about pain and all. I just wanted to learn more about what is regenerative medicine or treatment. What is regenerative medicine or treatment? There's a there's wow. an advertiser working yeah. in that angle. Uh, I tell you, I would be... Um, pretty skeptical about somebody who talks about regenerative um, medicine at this point in time. Um, there are um, lots of studies being done, mm-hmm. um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of things in the future. For example, osteoarthritis, um, the biggest, I think, thing for the future in terms of regenerative medicine is going to be stem cell therapy. Mm-hmm. And so what are you doing with stem cell therapy? You are taking uh, a person's own tissue, and there are little tiny cells all through your body, which can turn into new cells. So that is the ultimate in regenerative medicine. But if you talk about you know taking a pill uh, to regenerate you know damaged tissue, right. I think that's a long way off. Um, let me give you an example of regenerative medicine with, with uh, orthopedics. Um, yeah. I had a horse. And you may ask, what has this got to do with anything? Yeah. Um, and the veterinarians are allowed to do stuff <laughs> on animals that we're not allowed to do on humans. Yeah. And so uh, the horse lost all its cartilage in uh, the hip joint. Mm-hmm. And they took some, the, vet, the vets from uh, North Carolina State took the patient's blood, uh, the horse, and made stem cells, and they injected them into the joint, and the cartilage all grew back. Right. Now, they're doing these studies with humans, and I don't know why it's taking so long, but there are clinics in Europe that you can fly to and pay Boku money, and they'll do that to your knee. The studies are very promising, um, but I think that you know regenerative medicine is getting to be a big thing because there is at the Mayo Clinic the Center for Regenerative Biotherapeutics. Mm -hmm. And they're studying all sorts of things. Can you regenerate brain tissue? Uh, One of the big um, discoveries, I think, in this is an animal model, is they were able to take paralyzed mice and put stem cells into their spinal cords 
and deparalyze them. They began to walk again. Yes. So I think that regenerative medicine is going to be a big thing, and I mean going to be a big thing. Um, but I think that um, in terms of now, um, you got things that are in the um, pipeline, but not necessarily uh, ready for prime time. Right. Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate your call. All right, so we I announced last week, you know, I was off the air for a couple of weeks, and we let people know that what I'd done is burned the bottom of my feet. Being a diabetic, I don't feel the bottom of my feet. Uh, but you want to know something? What's that? You're lucky it happened. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm this, is one of those, this is one of those bad things that saved your life, maybe, and, uh, or saved your foot. Well, you, we think so. Yeah. Here's the thing. I burned the, burned the feet. And in the hospital, the doctors said, you've got a bone infection inside your foot. Now, diabetics know that bone infection is the worst thing you can hear because they've got to remove the bone. Here's the thing. I went to my regular doctor, the guy who looks at bone infection every day of the week. Guess what? I have no bone infection. I have no bone infection. Well, why did they say you did? Because they saw that my bone had, I had a stress fracture. And apparently on the x-ray, a stress Uh fracture. Can look like osteomyelitis. Can look like like a bone infection. thank God. So I am not going to have further surgery. Right. Which was going to be a big deal. Because of the volume of right. work they needed to do. So what are they going to do to heal your foot? Let it heal? Just going to stay off it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I they're mean, not going to have to put a pin in it. They're not going to put a pin. They're not going to remove anything. Yay! You know, it was, it, it was honestly, it was one of these things that was scary. And then I went to the one doctor I trusted. This tells you about, for instance, you're a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. If I had problems with my heart, I'd absolutely see a cardiologist. Right. I wouldn't just see your average, even talented doctor. The people who identified my bone as an infected in my foot do not look at bone infections all the time. I'm going to take my stuff, my hearing problems to an audiologist or somebody who's uh-huh. highly sure. qualified. Uh-huh. I'm going to take my cardiologist stuff to somebody who's highly qualified in cardiology. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Alzheimer's drugs. Got just enough yeah, time to talk it's, about it. It's a, um, a major, major thing. Yeah. Uh, because there was a recent drug that came out that was very similar. Yeah. And it was approved by the FDA. Mm-hmm. And these drugs are designed to remove uh, the plaque that occurs in the brain that is associated with Alzheimer's. It didn't work very well. No. It worked in a few patients. And so there was a big, big controversy. Well, maybe our theory of Alzheimer's is wrong. Yeah. And so now another drug that's very similar, and it was produced by Biogen, and a company that worked with them, E-I-S-A-I, ESI, I guess it's, or maybe ASI, mm-hmm. and it worked. 
um, and it's a huge thing. It's called the amyloid hypothesis. So the amyloid plaques are thought to interfere with neuron transmission in the brain and cause you to be demented. So they develop these antibodies and these drugs that remove the plaque. And it didn't work on the previous drug. But if you look at not only did the PET scans and the MRI show regression and reduction of the plaque, but they had neuropsychiatrists following these patients, obviously. And every year, they got a higher point scale for their cognitive abilities. So they got smarter. Yeah. Whereas the ones who did not get the medicine dropped pretty significantly year to year. Oh my. So not only did it remove the plaque, but it showed um, that it could slow the decline in um, cognitive abilities, uh, but also improve them in many patients. Can I get it now? Uh, it's not been approved yet by the FDA. Oh. Now the good news is it works. The bad news is, my gosh, what's this going to do to medical care costs in this country? Because these medicines are extremely expensive. The previous one um, showed perhaps a little bit of a success, and the FDA approved it. And it was going to bankrupt Medicare, in my opinion. And Medicare refused to pay for it unless it was part of a post-approval trial. Um, If this gets approved and costs... $2 $2 million a year for the number of Alzheimer's patients we have who are in Medicare. Oh, my. I do not know what it's going to do right. uh, to the cost structure. And, um, you know, quite frankly, I'm going to be a little selfish, but if they have to use the same amount of Medicare dollars and spend all this money on this uh, Alzheimer's drug, yeah, they're going to take money away from physicians. They're going to say, hey, oh, yeah. you know, we'll cut you by 20%. And... I don't know how we're going to afford it. But the good news is it worked. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the price structure is going to be, but um, I'm worried about how much it's going to cost us um, and what we're going to do about it. Ah. Well, let's see. That is, that's good news, bad news. It's good news, very good news, yeah. and possibly uh, very bad news. All right. Well, that's it for this week. We're back next week, noon on Saturday. Heart Health Radio.